Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. We're having uh, Fritjof Capra here today uh, to speak about his book, Patterns of Connection. And I'd like to welcome all of our online audiences, both live stream and those who watch later. Uh, today's conversation is really about um, his latest book. Obviously, uh, Fritjof Capra came to prominence back in the 1970s with his first uh, major book, The Tao of Physics. Um, and we are going to review the intellectual history that he has taken uh, ever since. So very, you know, very happy to have you get back again. And we, we uh, had a conversation back in 2014 on your book, Learning from Leonardo. Um, and here we are again, uh, only this time perfectly digital. Yeah. Hello, so. George. Very nice to see you again, even though it's just on the screen. And I look forward to our conversation. Great. So uh, one of the ideas in your book, we'll dive right in, um, is that one mindset about the world, uh, which say comes from ancient Greece and then uh, even more from Descartes, uh, is that there's an absolute truth and we're trying to get it. And if we know it all, we'll know everything. Basically, there's determinism and, and we'd be able to predict everything. And you take a different approach um, that theories are approximations of reality. So let's let's kind of do your journey of, of, of these different approximations of what you found important um, to try to understand reality. Because it seems to me what everybody who writes books about ideas anyway, everybody's trying to to share their concepts about our shared reality and see if we can't uh, you know, converse in a way that we all get a little bit more educated about what really is going on because it's awfully confusing. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me say, first of all, that uh, the fact that science doesn't deal with truth, but provides us with limited and approximate theories and models describing certain natural and social phenomena. That fact, I think, is the most important discovery of 20th century science. And mm -hmm. uh, the reason why we can never completely describe what we experience or what we observe is that all those phenomena are intimately interconnected so that in order to describe any part of reality completely, we would have to know how it is connected to everybody else. And so obviously this is impossible. And so what, what scientists do is to say, well, everything is interconnected, but some of these connections are more important than others. And I will now take into account only the most important ones, and the other ones I will leave out. And of course, which ones are the most important, you know, is a matter of intuition, a matter of taste, you know, a, a matter of careful observation. But this is why we have different theories and different models. And uh, the progress of science consists in replacing these theories and models by more accurate ones as time goes on, but knowing that we will never get at the truth if we mean by truth a completely accurate description of what we observe. And, and this has been my approach as, as a scientist. So, you know, I'm, uh, I'm often called a philosopher. I'm also mm -hmm. an environmental educator and activist. I have, I have done many things in my life and played many roles. But basically, my approach has always been a scientific approach. At, mm -hmm. at, at the core, I am a scientist. You want to explain your training in this because uh, sometimes when people um, um, discuss those scientists who have a slightly different viewpoint on science, 
they often wonder how scientific they are, but you have a, a solid background in science. Why don't you explain yes, to people have, what it is? I have a background in physics and, uh, you know, I got a PhD in theoretical physics in, in Vienna. I'm Austrian. And so I grew up in Austria and studied in Vienna. And uh, from my student years, I was very influenced by a book by Werner Heisenberg, uh, one of the mm -hmm. founders of uh, quantum physics. Uh, the book is now a classic. It's called Physics and Philosophy. And in this book, Heisenberg describes very vividly how a handful of physicists in the 1920s and 30s were facing a reality that was totally puzzling to them the reality of atomic and subatomic phenomena. And it forced them to revise their basic concepts, their way of thinking, their language, to be able to describe this atomic reality. This was a huge struggle. And looking back on, on my student years and then on my scientific career and my career as a writer, I can say that this book by Heisenberg, really determined the trajectory of my entire career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because quantum mechanics is one of the most successful uh, predictive models mathematically that we have. At the same time, nobody really can explain it theor uh, theoretically that clearly. It's, I mean, there are models for it, but everyone understands that there are issues with the model. There, there are fundamental issues when it comes to the process of observation, to the nature of reality, and Heisenberg describes all that very vividly. And uh, so, so this was one really formative event, reading this book. And I have reread it, you know, hundreds of times. It has accompanied me uh, throughout my life. The other, the other formative event uh, were the 1960s. Those were my formative years when I was in my 20s. And I embraced the various grassroots movements of the 60s, the questioning of authority, the experience of community, the whole counterculture, the strong interest in spirituality, in Eastern mysticism. And uh, so uh, these, these were the years that really formed my values and my worldview. And very early on, I recognized significant parallels between the views of Eastern spiritual traditions and the views of quantum physics as described by Heisenberg in his book. And so then I put the two together and the result in 1975 was the Tao of Physics, where I examined these parallels between the basic ideas of modern physics and the basic concepts in Eastern mysticism. And uh, a lot of people have followed you down that road, uh, physicists and non-physicists. And uh, it's it's interesting. I mean, part of the, the issue that arises is because um, if we observe particles at these tiny levels, um, we can either know more about their velocity or know more about their position. But the more precise you get about one, the less precise about the other. But one of the issues that I think uh, is not clear to a lot of people uh, when they think about it from a very mystical point of view is that the the act of observation is causing the issue um, where but but our act of observation at that level is 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 merely a mechanical process we're not seeing it with our eyes and we're not i mean there's a we are affecting those particles by other particles that we're trying to see them with right as opposed to the, uh, some kind of gestalt uh, experience that, that changes things. That's, that's right. When we observe uh, these uh, atomic and subatomic phenomena, um, we need to disturb them because uh, when, we look, when we look at things, when we say, when we shine light on th something, uh, at the subatomic level, this means we direct a stream of photons toward them. 
And these photons, the particles of light, disturb the atom that we observe. And we can do it in various ways and we see various things. But, you know, George, very interestingly, to make a jump now uh, mm -hmm. of, of several decades, uh, the cognitive science of today says exactly the same thing. There's a theory called the Santiago theory of cognition, which says that the world we see is not an independently existing objective world, but it is a world that we bring forth in the process of living. So mm -hmm. what we see depends on who we are. And, and we know that from experience. When you take, for example, say, I want to, I want to look at a tree. I know that a bird or an insect will see the same tree in a very different way because they have a very different sensory apparatus. So what mm -hmm. we see depends on our sensory apparatus. And it also depends on the state of mind that we are in. You know, if I have mm -hmm. a couple of drinks and look at the tree, I may say it quite, see it quite differently. You know, even more extreme, if, if, if I were to take LSD, I, I might see the tree, you know, flaming and, and all mm -hmm. kinds of things. And who who is to say what the real tree is? So right. we, we bring forth a world. And that began with Heisenberg and is now reflected in the most recent cognitive science. It's interesting, as you said, because we also know um, that what we see with our eyes is a certain spectrum of radiation, you know, the, the colors. Right. And, and what we hear with our ears is another spectrum of, of, of uh, wave mo motion sound and sound waves and so on. And, and so we have all these different senses, but we're not picking up all the information that's out there at all. And when you, when you were talking about the uncertainty principle, I thought one thing that might be useful, you said about how we, we uh, shine light on something. Now, there's light shining on both of us so that people can see us. But the percentage of, you know, the, the, the size of the photons compared to our size is, is extremely small, and there's trillions of them being used to bounce off of one big thing. It, we're the same size, but if I had to try to learn something about you, if I bounced myself off of you, I would not get that much information. And so by, by looking at these tiny particles, we, we're, we're, we are limited in, in, even in a theoretical way because we're going to be bouncing something off of it, which is the same size as it is or somewhere in that range. And, yeah. and, you know, the great achievement of Werner Heisenberg was that he put these limitations into a mathematical framework. So we know what the limitations are and we can operate in physics within those limitations. And in science in general, um, we, we progress by continuously improving the the uh, approximation mm -hmm. what you mentioned this in your book uh, in one of your essays about that that limit um and it's, it's a curiosity of mine uh from a lay point, point of view is that the limit of uncertainty uh, is there as if something happens within that limit it's not real and i was just wondering all the, the talk about virtual particles and uh, in quantum mechanics doesn't that sort of uh, undercut the, the conservation of mass energy idea that nothing is created and nothing's destroyed, it just keeps changing form? If there can be virtual particles that come and go, but they're, they're all right, they're not real as long as they're within the limits of uncertainty. Uh, it's a, an interesting combination of ideas. It's a strange reality. But, you know, mm -hmm. the, the basic problem is that uh, when we, when you just said particles, you know, we think of little billiard balls or, mm -hmm. you know, grains of sand or whatever, but subatomic particles are nothing like this. They are mm -hmm. patterns of interconnections, patterns of relationships. Uh, a colleague of mine uh, from my physics days, Henry Stapp, wrote once that for a physicist, a subatomic particle is not an object but a set of relationships that reach out toward other things. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the shift. And and 
in in my work over these five decades, which which I chronicle in Patterns of Connection, uh, I came to realize that at the very core of this paradigm shift from a mechanistic view of the world to a holistic, ecological, and systemic view, at the very core is a profound change of metaphors from seeing the world as a machine to understanding it as a network. Yes, and we're going to go into that in detail because that's a, you've spent a lot of your life on that idea as well. Um, before we do that, the, the, uh, you mentioned about forces. This is another idea before we leave physics, I think, and, and move on to systems thinking. Um, people talk about the forces and mathematically they're trying to, to unite the forces into one theory. Um, but you mentioned that forces are just other particles at work, as, if, as you, you mentioned them as networks, and as if the momentum of a bunch of uh, what we call particles around the nucleus is what keeps the nucleus tightly bound or whatever, something like that um, is, is what a force is. And so it's interesting that the idea of force itself as a, as a distinction from just the momentum of particles uh, influencing each other, the idea of the forces themselves. You know, we talk about forces and we talk about the nuclear force and then the weak force of, of uh, radioactive decay and we talk about the force of gravity, but at the subatomic level, uh, force is really not a very uh, useful concept anymore. Uh, we have replaced it either by the concept of field, and mm -hmm. uh, a field, especially a quantum field, can manifest itself in the forms of particles, or without even the field idea as networks of particles. And mm -hmm. again, when I say particles, sets of relationships. It's mm -hmm. all sets of relationships. But I should mention that for those of our listeners who want to go into more detail in this, uh, I have one essay in the book called The Unification of Physics that goes mm -hmm. into all these details from uh, qu the quantum theory of the 1920s to the discovery of the Higgs bos boson, the, you know, the latest great triumph of particle physics that's all in this essay unification of physics that's right and i, I you 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 just gave uh, the point that i was going to go for which is the the idea of force uh, is only four or five hundred years old as a way as an approximation of reality and that it's not actually as useful or 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 necessary for trying to unite those things because there's a different way of looking at things um like as you just explained yeah i was just the other day, yesterday actually, I was talking to a friend about uh, Newton and the law of gravity, and uh, he asked me whether Newton invented the term gravity, and I told him, no, gravity existed before, the term existed before, but what it meant was a tendency to move toward the earth, and the opposite of gravity was levity, a tendency to move upward. Leonardo da Vinci in the 15th century used those terms, gra gravity and levity. What Newton did was to identify gravity as a force and gave it a mathematical expression, which is now known as Newton's law of gravity. And, uh, and, but he didn't come up with Newton's law of, of levitation. No. <laughs> <laughs> so... Well, we will, uh, uh, one, before we leave this totally, uh, you talked about the 60s a little bit, and I just was wondering how you felt, uh, this is just popular culture, but there's a new movie out uh, of Dune, and you, you mentioned Dune, Frank Herbert's uh, novel, and it certainly influenced a lot of people in the 60s, and it was a, a sort of a, a, a capstone. It, it so, cult science fiction. Cult uh, science fiction, yeah. I, I actually never read it because I don't like science fiction. It's, it's not something that I read. <laughs> but I mentioned it uh, in my essay on the 60s because, you know, it was it was extremely popular. You know, what I re read at the time was Hermann Hesse, you know, Steppenwolf uh -huh. and Nazis and Goldmund. And uh, I could Sinatra. read them in German, of course. And uh, I read Castaneda like many other people did. So th mm -hmm. those were sort of the Bibles of the 60s. 
It sounds like Siddhartha uh, influenced you a little bit because you're, you're, of your interest. Uh, where, where did you get your interest in, in the, the Tao um, and, and, and uh, Eastern ideas? You mentioned the 60s, but was there, is there something more specific? You could say, you know, when, when George Harrison took sitar lessons from Ravi Shankar and the Beatles <laughs> went to India, uh, you know, the, the Indian culture was very strong and very influential in the, in the 1960s. Uh, we we had Indian statues, and I still have a statue of the dancing Shiva on on my desk. You know, uh-huh. which actually I got this in the seventies. So this this very statue has been with me, you know, in the various places where I live, and and so this this interest was very strong. Um, I spent uh, the first two years of my postdoctoral work in Paris in 1967 and 68. And of course, May 68 was the time of the student revolt. But in Paris, I read my first uh, Eastern text, the Bhagavad Gita, which is often called the Bible of of Hinduism, an extremely Mm -hmm. beautiful and powerful spiritual poem. And then I uh, I read uh, books by uh, the Beat Generation, the Beat Poets, Ferlinghetti mm-hmm. and Gary Snyder and Kerouac's On the Road. And there's a lot of Zen Buddhism in the, those books. And mm-hmm. uh, I could say that actually I got interested in Eastern mysticism through the arts, through Indian music, Indian sculptures, mm-hmm. And then through the literature of the Beat Generation. And then, you know, I read scholarly books, obviously. Alan Watts mm-hmm. was very influential, uh, D.T. Suzuki and various other books uh, on, on these traditions. In, in one of your essays, you mentioned um, this dancing Shiva image um, and your experience uh, on a beach in California. Do you want to go into that or not? Yeah, this is what I now call the my epiphany on the beach, and so so um, I live I lived in Santa Cruz, <clears throat> and I was doing physics teaching and research at UC Santa Cruz, and uh, you know one late summer evening I sat uh, on one of those beaches uh, in meditation, and that was the thing to do, you know. Mm-hmm, when you absolutely. were a true hippie, you you were meditating, you know, sitting cross-legged on the beach, meditating was the thing to do. And and so it was a very beautiful day, very quiet. I was alone on the beach and I felt the rhythm of the waves coming in and I tried to harmonize my breathing in a meditative way with this rhythm of the waves. And suddenly I felt the whole environment is being engaged in a gigantic cosmic dance. And as a physicist, I knew that all the parts of my environment, the molecules and atoms were in constant motion. I also knew that there were showers of so-called cosmic rays impinging on the atmosphere and, you know, creating, you know, showers of secondary particles. All this I knew from theories from mathematics, from experimental data. But in that meditative moment, that experience came to life. And I sort of saw and heard this cosmic dance. And it was quite clear to me at the time that this is what the Hindus meant with Shiva Nataraja, the Lord of Dancers, uh, Mm -hmm. Shiva representing the cosmic dance and the dancing activity being the activity, the divine activity of creation and destruction in the universe. And that experience uh, really gave me the impetus to write the Tao of Physics uh, several years later. I had discovered parallels between physics and mysticism before, but that experience uh, sort of you know, made it visceral and emotional and gave me mm-hmm. a very strong impetus. And uh, created an image uh, that uh, is now uh, in a sculpture in, uh, in Europe, in, in, in Switzerland, right? Which I thought was yes. a very nice tribute to your work. 
It 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 was, and and this is an an interesting story because in in the nineteen seventies, uh, before I published the Tao Physics, I gave a talk about it at CERN, the European Research Institute for Particle Physics, one of the most prestigious places of uh, physics research. And, uh, you know, I was a working physicist at the time, and I knew many of the people who worked there, and mm-hmm. they listened to my talk about physics and Eastern mysticism, and they sort of smiled politely, but didn't really <laughs> respond, and didn't take me seriously. And mm-hmm. then many years later, at the 50th anniversary of CERN, the government of India donated a Shiva statue to CERN, which is now in the grounds. And uh, the administrators of CERN put up a plaque next to the Shiva statue with quotations from the Tao physics about the cosmic dance of subatomic particles. So I was was vindicated. And and in (laughs) fact, I can also say that after the publication of the Tao physics, there were many maybe two generations of books being published by physicists. And Mm -hmm. as I say in in my essay, maybe some of those authors were even present at my lecture at CERN. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Who knows? But in any case, uh, very influential um, in an attempt to try to to get this from another point of view and also to take in uh, another culture. So what's difficult of these cross-cultural ideas is that the images you know, are understood differently by different people. When you borrow an image and, and, and move it over, it seems so um, anthropocentric, for example, rather than the the, the uh, images of the dance, the, the uh, molecular dance that's going on. But people, if they, if you want to look at it, you can look at, at water if you watch molecules or, or, or you know, the motion oh. of rounding motion. It's a, it's the same sort of motion, just on a, on a, on a more... Uh, a level that you can see more easily. And of course, when we talk about the dance of Shiva, it's a metaphor, you know? Right. The, the, the word dance, cosmic dance, these, these, are, these are all metaphors. Right. So, but I think you, I'm, I'm guessing a little bit here, but I assume that that experience plus uh, your work on the Tao of Physics sort of moved you towards working on human culture or more, uh, you know, well, this is issues. this is another part of the story which which I detail in in patterns of connection. What happened was <clears throat> that the Tao physics was tremendously successful, uh, much more than I had ever hoped for, and so mm-hmm. I was invited to give lectures and seminars to professional organizations to you know, architects and health professionals and psychologists and anthropologists, you know, people from all walks of life. And very often after these lectures, people told me that a similar change of paradigms was happening not only in physics, but also in their fields, in biology, Mm -hmm. in medicine, in forestry, in anthropology, and so on. And so I became interested in these other areas. And uh, at a certain point, and so I expanded my focus and did more research in other areas. And at some point, I realized that the issues I now was interested in, like health or politics, economics, the management of organizations, uh, political power, and so on, and of mm-hmm. course, you know, my my roots in the 60s had prepared me for that, the counterculture of the 60s that questioned mm-hmm. authority and so on. So anyway, I realized that all these issues had to do with life, with mm-hmm. human beings, individual organisms, ecosystems, social systems. So, and physics, I knew, had nothing to say about life. The nature of life is not something that is uh, discussed in physics. And so I had to go beyond physics and look for a new framework. And this was the beginning of a long journey of 30 or 40 years uh, to put together what I now call the systems view of life, a synthesis of a new understanding of life in terms of relationships and networks.
And uh, you had a predecessor in Erwin Schrodinger uh, who wrote a book, What is Life as a Physicist? Uh, why don't you explain that to people too? Because you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, scientists are not willing to step outside their area. Um, and, uh, Absolutely. You know, I, I think Schrodinger is uh, one of the very underestimated scientists. He's, of course, famous for his Schrodinger equation in quantum physics, but he also... Uh, you know, was in, very interested in the nature of life. And this small book based on lectures he gave in Dublin, uh, this book, What is Life, um, really uh, has two aspects. One is that he said, uh, living systems need a continual flow of energy and matter to stay alive. They are mm-hmm. always far from equilibrium. They, they uh, do not observe the second law of thermodynamics, which says things go from order to disorder, and, but there is an opposite movement from disorder to order, and that remained a big puzzle for many decades. And mm-hmm. the other thing that Schrodinger did in his book said was to say that there must be physical units of heredity, which, mm-hmm. you know, Darwin and Mendel uh, did not know, or they did not really address the question of the physical nature of the units of heredity. And Schrodinger said there must be a molecular structure. And this sparked the whole movement of molecular biology which culminated in the discovery of the uh, double helix structure of DNA, the genetic code, and all that. So Schrödinger was tremendously successful. And he she did many other things. He had a theory of color vision and all kinds of, of sciences. And I'm, I'm I- sorry to say that uh, I missed meeting Schrödinger uh, mm-hmm. He was teaching at the University of Vienna maybe 10 years or so before I became a student there. Mm. Well, you can be forgiven that uh, being 10 years old at the time. <laughs> but but uh, that's it's an interesting uh, thing. And I, you know, since I like across discipline thinking and, and ideas, uh, I, I would I really like the idea of scientists who are very good in their field that then step outside it and say, this is where some of what we're thinking about might influence you. You're talking about it uh, from your book, The Tao of Physics, and how the same sort of uh, movement away from absolutist ideas was happening in all these other fields. That's what got you interested from your um, speaking. And you know what I tell young people, students and other young people, when they ask me about what they should study and and what career they should take and uh, i tell them get get competent and acquire skills in a particular discipline and it doesn't matter what the discipline is because you're not going to have a life where you will have the same profession throughout your life our world mm-hmm. is quite different now uh, we don't have stable jobs during our whole life we don't even have stable professions but what mm-hmm. you will keep is to learn how to think, to learn how to think critically, to address mm-hmm. a problem, to organize your thoughts, to organize your work, all that you learn if, if you, you know, get uh, training in a particular discipline. And that can be transferred to other disciplines. That's great advice because, it's, you know, as you said, that's our new world. Um, we're in the transition group between those two worlds, but the everyone, everyone uh, get, coming out of college now probably have four or five professions before they're they're finished. Right, absolutely. Yeah, um, and that's a it's a a, a good uh, reason why uh, liberal arts is still useful, etc. You you can how, how to express yourself, how to make it clear, because so many uh, you you make this co- comment in one of your essays too. You know, our emotional needs get in the way of our clear thinking. No, that's that's sort of what gets in our way. Um, and so it re- really one has to kind of get around that if we can. Yeah. At, at the same time, uh, we need to recognize that there is an overall 
global narrative, the narrative of Gaia, our living planet, which needs to be respected. So whatever we do in life, in whatever profession, we need to do it in such a way that we do not interfere with nature's inherent ability to sustain life and to continually regenerate life. So, so that's a, a very important you know, moral uh, constraint and a, a, a moral uh, responsibility that we have. You, you talk about dissipate, dissipative structures, if I've got the word right, um, which are structures, uh, and you, you use the example of something that wasn't life, which is a whirlpool. A whirlpool can last for quite a while as a structure, and other material is going through it. A river, I mean, not too much different, but the material keeps going through it, but the structure stays the same. Um, and it, it reminded me from a legal point of view of tax structures that are set up so that all the, all, all the information just flows through it and, and nobody gets taxed. But <laughs> yeah, well, this is characteristic of all life. It's easier mm -hmm. to look at the whirlpool because we have experience of that. But uh, a, a living cell, metaphorically, can be understood as a whirlpool. Energy and matter go through it all the time. But the network of relationship that exists, that are the very essence of the cell, uh, remains the same. So uh, what it means is that life is inherently regenerative. It organizes itself in networks, and the very essence of the organization is the continuous regeneration. And uh, we know from science that, that um, our cells uh, only last six or seven or eight years or something like that, and they're, they're replaced. The in, in, in other, right. other parts of it, the same thing. If we go down to the level of the atoms, uh, it's probably even more. And I, I think this is one of the things that really fools us about, about life um, because we have visual uh, memories of everything. So we imagine, for example, if you think about your childhood, you imagine your house still being there, that you could visit that physical house. Now, the house itself might be there, but what it's made out of is completely different by now. Yeah. So, so um, and, and this idea of networks, we have a continuum. We're always in this continuum. One of the ideas that has been come up often uh, for for millennium is that there might be that there's a particle of time, like there's a particle of of um, reality, like a, the, the atomic theory. But there's a particle of time that is there's a, some piece of time that is the smallest amount of time that one can have. But that that idea would require that the whole universe is recreated every, every time that, that instant comes along. Whereas the idea of a continuum can completely eliminates that idea. It's just, just everything is in the current present. Um, so we have a, a lot of questions coming in already, but I, I, I want you to cover uh, some of your big ideas about systems thinking um, before we get to the questions. So, Okay. Well, it's, I can do it very quickly by saying <laughs> that, that if the world is really a network or networks within networks, then in order to understand it, we have to learn how to think in terms of networks. And as everybody knows, a network is a certain pattern of links, of relationships. So we need to think in terms of patterns, in terms of relationships, and in terms of context. And that's what is called systems thinking or systemic thinking. That was very short. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and, and you, you uh, explain in your book how that gets, uh, that's more popular in different areas now. Um, and, uh, and how important it is. Like in economics, there's this theory of the rational man, you know, making decisions on this. And, you know, there, there's no real person who, who behaves the way that the theory is based upon. That's, that's that right. I mean, economics has to be uh, really uh, restructured very, very fundamentally. And what, what we have now is, uh, well, let, let me go back to the past. In the early economists uh, were looking at how the exchange of goods 
and the buying and selling using money as as the tool how this can contribute to our wealth and and our well-being and uh from money as a tool for buying and selling uh over the years and over over uh, the decades uh money became a purpose in itself to make money mm-hmm. became a purpose in itself and what happens when you make money in an unlimited way is that at first you know you use it for your livelihood you know food and shelter and everything then when you get very rich you know you you buy villas and and yachts and all kinds of trappings of wealth but then you mm-hmm. reach a certain point where you have everything you can't buy anything but you still accumulate money and and our billionaires today use money as a measure of power that's what it mm-hmm. has become uh as uh, you know one uh one of these early on a a uh petroleum tycoon by the name of hunt i forgot his initials mm-hmm. uh very famously said money is just a way of keeping score Mm-hmm. so right. so it's to see who has more power you know is it mm-hmm. is it elon musk or is it jeff bezos or is mm-hmm. it richard branson all these people now fly into outer space to show how much money they have in other words <laughs> who is the most powerful and and at this point money of course not not necessarily makes you happy because uh when one billionaire realizes that his competitor has a few billion more then you know he becomes an alcoholic and gets very depressed i mean with with all this wealth so so we need to really put the financial sector of uh, of the economy in its place so that the purpose of economics is to further our well-being and to further the 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 constant regeneration of our natural environment and not use it as a measure of power and it's interesting because when you measure things for the wrong reason it, it, it as you said it becomes the goal and um it, it reminds me of IQ testing you know you can't really measure someone's intelligence overall but you can measure their academic thing yeah at at the very center and and i write about this a lot in the book at the very center of our interconnected global problems is this illusion that unlimited economic growth purely quantitative growth um is uh, feasible on a finite planet so we urgently need to shift from quantitative to qualitative growth because in nature not everything grows all the time certain parts grow others decline and then disintegrate release their components that become resources for new growth and this kind of balanced multifaceted growth is very well known to biologists and ecologists and i call it qualitative growth growth mm-hmm. that enhances the quality of life and i i think you point out if you just measure our success financially by the gdp you could do anything um you you could destroy everything like like the gdp goes up if a hurricane destroys everything and you have to rebuild it all well if you just yeah and so it's it's a very inaccurate measure of what what's going on and it will be particularly problematic if if the if we attempt to bring the population down as opposed to up i mean it's it's a uh... G- the gdp is a a a very crude purely quantitative measure and there's a, a a big difference between quantities and qualities quantities can be measured qualities need to be mapped something like health or happiness or beauty cannot be measured on a quantitative scale they have to be mapped and so what we need now to to judge the health of the economy is qualitative indicators of health education 
literacy and and so on and and of course there are movements that do that there's a, a european organization beyond gdp for example mm-hmm. that that pursues that yeah i think you, you point out there the difference between quantitative uh details and mapping uh measuring and mapping and you you do that in your essays too and i think that that's part of the the, the movement but it's very interesting to me because i think that the one of the 20th century myths for science was it, if you can't measure it you can't know it well well right. you know we we have so many things that we know that we cannot measure in that quantitative right. way and and certainly we don't want to reduce our life to just those quantitative things the success at quantitative measuring though is absolutely a, a valuable part of making a higher qualitative life so it's not that one or the other is wrong so um i i think in in systems thinking you know there's a shift from the parts to the whole but we don't forget about the parts we also deal right. with the parts yeah absolutely so uh we have some questions that have come in um and i'll i'll uh, ask him gary asks you use the word divine in describing the interconnectedness of all things what do you mean by this well i use the word divine when i talk about spiritual traditions and uh in my own work actually i don't use it much if at all but uh in spiritual traditions the uh the essence of the universe or you know the aliveness the spirit of the universe is often associated with the divine and in hinduism for instance uh you have a whole series of gods and goddesses in monotheistic religions like islam christianity you you have a single god and there are there are other spiritual traditions like buddhism and taoism where the divine is not used there is no divine entity so i use it to actually to refer to these traditions that use the term good and uh, david brown asks is our universe expanding and is gravitational energy conserved a couple of physics questions well um this is a an area that um i'm actually uh, not an expert on the area of uh, cosmology and um uh, astrophysics uh mm-hmm. which uh, involves einstein's general theory of relativity and from my conversations with astrophysicists and cosmologists i have learned that these terms like conservation of energy uh do not apply when you talk about the universe as a whole and I'm glad that we are coming toward the end of our conversation because if you asked me to explain this in more detail I couldn't. <laughs> this this is not an area of my expertise. But I can recommend a fabulous book, a small book by an astrophysicist, uh, a young woman called Jana Levy and mm-hmm. the book is How the Universe Got Its Spots. <laughs> and she she talks about all these things in the book right we we had i don't know if you know sabina hosenfelder um she's a german physicist and we had her uh, on a couple of months ago and she was she was great about the big issues too uh, she works out of the frankfurt institute lua kunig asks what do you think this convergence between such a vastly distant area of thought uh, means about the nature of reality the convergence of different fields um do you think that that means the fact that all these disciplines are converging towards systems thought what does that mean about reality well uh i think what it means is as i said before that there is not an in, there's no independently existing reality we bring forth reality in the process of living and if we bring forth very similar views of reality that means to me that we are really coming close 
to the very essence of human nature, which we all have in common. So whether we are from the East or the West or North and South, we are all human beings and we experience nature in a certain way. And uh, for instance, take Native American cultures who talk about nature as all my relations. Well, that's exactly, that's systemic thinking. They are systemic thinkers. And so when we come to the very essence of human nature, it's, uh, it's our sense of being interconnected, of being part of one larger whole, which is both ancient wisdom and modern science. That comes right to the next question, which is really a, a good one. Now, you, you, you've obviously delved into a large number of different theories and philosophies and religions over the years. Something, uh, as you say, the 60s influenced a lot of us to do exactly the same thing. Um, this question comes from Arum, and he asks, what area of Eastern philosophy do you find the most intriguing at this point in your career in life? Is there, is there one in particular, or, or is it just the general systems thinking of, of several of them? I have, uh, you know, studied and experienced the three major traditions, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Taoism. And uh, I wrote the Tao physics before I ever went to India and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, gained my knowledge from, from books and conversations with, uh, with teachers and so on. And uh, when I went to India, I realized that I could never be a Hindu because this is so culturally specific and it's, it's not my culture. The practice of Hinduism is not my culture. Whereas Buddhism has transcended cultural trappings, has moved from India to China to Japan to North America and Europe, and, and I can be a Buddhist. So I, uh, I have been close to Buddhism um, for most of my life, but I'm also especially fascinated by Taoism. This is why I called my book The Tao of Physics. And my uh, meditative practice is actually a Taoist practice. I, I have practiced mm -hmm. Tai Chi for many decades, and, and that's my spiritual practice. Perfect answer. Now we have a couple of questions on video. Hello, I'm Elizabeth Carney, and I have a question for the Commonwealth Club program, Patterns of Connection. Given that COVID has shined a light on our broken systems in our country and in our world, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about how we can respond to the breakdown with the medical system. What you see, how we could create a new system, a new paradigm, and what actions we could take. Thank you. Well, thank you, Elizabeth, for this very topical and very important question. Well, first of all, <clears throat> I can tell you I have an essay in the book about the COVID pandemic. It's uh, chronologically the last essay I, I wrote just last year. And I say in it that uh, I see the coronavirus as a biological response of Gaia, our living planet, to the ecological and social emergency that humanity has brought upon itself. And I elaborate on that. Uh, I don't talk about the medical system in this book, but I do talk about it in my book, in my textbook, The System's View of Life, because um, uh, the system's view of life corresponds to a systems view of health that deals with health in terms of relationships and networks and fluctuations and so on. And I should mention here that I also teach an online course based on the textbook about the systems view of life. The course is known as Capra course, easy to find on the internet. And I've taught it for six years now. And, uh, in the course, I have a specific lecture about the system's view of health, where I go into these details. Great. Um, 
One of the things that you mentioned uh, in the book uh, is about the carrying capacity. This is often raised, the carrying capacity of the earth. Um, and one of the things when I was looking at that myself um, a couple of years ago was uh, something we talked about just before um, this, this conversation started, which was about fungi. That fungi are 2% of the biomass of the earth. And human beings are one ten thousandth of 1% of of the biomass of the earth so if we took like if we replaced half of the fungi with human beings uh, 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 the carrying capacity we would still only have one percent of the biomass on earth and i calculated that as being 100 trillion human beings so I, I assume that we obviously can't do that but it doesn't seem it's the biomass carrying capacity of the earth it's it's how intelligently human beings go about living their life and whether they're poisoning the system and so on and so forth, as opposed to the actual biomass that we need to keep living. Uh, I was wondering if you wanted to comment about that. What it means that that we, rather than dominating nature, which is part of the 17th century mechanistic worldview, Descartes, mm. Francis Bacon, and so on, rather than dominating nature, we need to cooperate with nature we need to uh, be part of the community of life. And when you are part of a community, then you behave in a certain way to show that you are part of the community. And that's the very essence of the idea of ecological sustainability, to respect and cooperate with nature's inherent ability to sustain life. That, that's our challenge. You talk in your book and in a couple of your essays about shallow ecology and deep ecology. And, and shallow is just thinking about it from a human point of view. And deep is to think about it from the entire, uh, you know, the whole biological system on our planet, of which we are only one ten thousandth of one percent of. That's right. That that terminology was created by a Norwegian philosopher, Arne Ness, in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And it was elaborated on in great detail in the Earth Charter, uh, published first in the year 2000, which is a set of 16 ethical principles that show us how to create a world that is sustainable, just, and peaceful. I have a whole essay about the Earth Charter also in the book. And to go back to the question about divine before these these ethical principles are are merely observing the way life is and commenting on it and they're not they're not dictated by some divine yes and and in particular uh from a science point of view ethics means uh behavior for the common good you see mm -hmm. when when life emerged on the planet 3 uh, uh billion years ago um, life immediately formed communities. The first bacteria formed bacterial colonies, and at all levels of evolution, life has flourished in communities. And it turns out that those communities in which the individuals acted for the benefit of the whole, for the common good, had an evolutionary advantage. And those are the ones we see around us now. So from a science point of view, ethics means behavior for the common good. And we have another video question. Um, if that could be brought up, that'd be great. Hi, Fredjo. Thank you for doing this uh, talk. And my name is Manuel Manga. And I would like to ask you one and related question. Uh, my main question is, how do we transition from a global capitalist system toward a more sustainable and ecological civilization? And related to that, what kind of leadership and actions are needed? Thank you so much for your work. Well, this is uh, a big question. Thank you, Manuel. And I would say the first step 
means to recognize the faults of the capitalist system we have now, in particular to recognize the fallacy of this obsession with unlimited growth, the illusion that this is possible on a finite planet, and the shift from quantitative to qualitative growth. The other thing I would say is we need to recognize that all the major problems we have today are interconnected, they are systemic problems, and they need corresponding systemic solutions, which means solutions that do not address any problem in isolation, but always in relationship to other problems. And in my textbook, The System's View of Life, my co-author and I spent 60 pages analyzing the most important systemic solutions that exist today. And we conclude that we have the knowledge and we have the technologies to move toward sustainability. What we need is political will and leadership. And this, this leadership will probably not come from the top, but has to be exerted by all of us, has to be widely distributed. Uh, I think of, of often it's that we're moving towards a, a, a democratic future, but we're still completely dripping in authoritarian ways. You know, I mean, it, we haven't been convinced yet, um, even in our personal lives sometimes, not to just demand that the world adjust to us rather than us adjust to the world and do it intelligently. So we have another question here, and then I have one, one last thing before we wrap it up. So Susan Hopp asks, you speak about respecting the earth and its ability to regenerate life. In the time of the Anthropocene, do you believe the human race can shift away from the lack of respect in our actions? Well, you just said that you think so, but why don't you say a little bit more about, about that? Well, can we the, do it? Uh, this question is uh, very often asked, and I actually end my book with this question. Uh, is mm -hmm. there hope for the future? And the greatest inspiration I have found during the last 20 years comes from the great Czech uh, playwright and statesman Václav Havel, who turns the question into a meditation on hope. And I just want to briefly read you what Havel says. That's on the very last page of the book. The kind of hope that I often think about, I understand above all as a state of mind, not a state of the world. Either we have hope within us or we don't. It is a dimension of the soul, and it's not essentially dependent on some particular observation of the world or estimate of the situation. Hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense, regardless of how it will turn out. So that has inspired my whole work. And that was where I wanted to end this program, because it's a great quote. And I, I, uh, I just, when we look at that kind of comment, um, it's we should have hope that there's some certainty out there because there are patterns. There are patterns in our personal behavior. There's patterns that we're figuring out in the matter. We just need to keep this project going further and further. We, we may understand 3% of what's going on in our bodies or 5% of something else. And I think if we just understand that there is a certainty, there's too many patterns for it to just be whimsical and chaos. Um, that we, if we're intelligent and work together and we get a lot of diverse views so that we, we can gain the advantage of having millions of us instead of, you know, the disadvantage of it, uh, we should be able in just four or five centuries figure that out. And there is, there, there is a great order in the universe. And, uh, you know, in modern science, even chaos theory says that chaos is not what we think it is. It's a hidden form of order. So we are in a great symphony of life, or in other words, we are part of the community of life. And Pythagoras, who got a lot of scientific thinking going, was the one who said, this is not chaos, this is cosmos, it's an order. Right, absolutely. So... We'll end it there, and so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 119th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you very much for joining us, and Fritjof, thanks again for joining us once again. It's been too long. We'll do this again. 
Join us on November 19th at 6 p.m. Pacific time for a virtual fundraising gala and celebrate the leadership of women in science and medicine. Make a donation to the Commonwealth Club and support our critical mission to provide balanced, civil dialogue on society's most challenging issues. Text CLUB2021 to 41444 to register and donate today. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.